everyone, this is Kate Kelly, founder of Ordain Women. And I just wanted to talk about the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast. It is just such an invaluable resource. I love listening to it. I came to a point in my life where I just really needed to hear the voices of women telling stories about women. And that's what this podcast is. Lindsay's series about polygamy is unique and totally unprecedented. It's a wonderful resource and women doing wonderful work deserve to get paid. So please support the podcast if you can. If you can make a regular donation of just $5 a month, it would mean a lot. And it means not only that you continue to get wonderful material and stuff to listen to, but it also means that women doing this work are supported, which is important. So please support the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast. Back to another episode of the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, bringing you another episode in the Year of Polygamy series where we try to understand and untangle the practice of Mormon plural marriage and see how it affects us today. And I am super excited to have uh, someone I've been talking about. I've kind of dropped some plugs about this episode before, but I brought on someone who knows a lot about Mormon fundamentalism, but has is not a Mormon and doesn't really have any sort of background with Mormonism. Without further ado, I'd like to introduce my guest, Sanjeev Bhattacharya. Sanjeev, can you say hello? Hi, how are you doing? Good. So, Sanjeev, what does a non-Mormon, non-Christian from India and London care about Mormonism for? Well, that's a very good question. I had to answer that question uh, maybe a, a million times when I went to Utah, everybody asked me the same question. Like, what on earth are you doing here? <laughs> and, you know, that's the question we all ask ourselves, really. I mean, I don't know. My life is just a series of um, accidents, fortunate and unfortunate. I mean, I think I don't think I have, I suppose, uh, an, an, an obsessive uh, curiosity about Mormons in particular, but it just seemed... Uh, I've always been interested in religion. I've always been interested in things that I not necessarily, I don't ne- innately understand. And um, there are lots of things about Mormons that uh, that that sort of rang my bells. Uh, one one is that it's a fairly recent religion. And I find uh, if you're interested in religion at all, the recent ones are are, are easily the more interesting than the older ones. Um, how do these things come about? They also seem, it's also part of America. I sort of moved to America and it sort of accidentally became my home and I, there's really no sign of me going back. I've been here about 16 years now. So I found, I sort of found myself in this country that I'd really only ever seen on TV. And there, I had a very sort of um, naive idea about America. I knew that it had Mormons in it. I didn't know what Mormons were. I knew that that I'd, I'd heard sort of lurid stories that some of them have got lots of wives, and I thought, wow, that's amazing that they that there's America's this such a fabulous place. It's it's got 
it's so huge. You have these extraordinary subcultures where people have lots of wives and, and then they appear on TV. I remember seeing this on like Jerry Springer and stuff. This was, this was before I, before I'd actually moved. So things like that, um, that, that, they kind of drew me towards the, the, the Mormon story. And then I sort of discovered kind of by accident that I was quite, quite close by. I was living in LA. I was in the West. And there, there was this enormous polygamy drama going on with Warren Jeffs and the FLDS. And, um, I, uh, I sort of, I, I plunged into it and Mormons being very nice people, fundamentalists also being nice people. They sort of, they weren't nearly as bad as the press were making out. They were actually quite friendly and quite curious in a way about like about the situation that they were in. There was a bit of self-examination going on. And I, I, I guess I thought um, as, a, as a freelancer that this was a very rich topic. And it, it, it didn't have to be Mormons. I mean, to be perfectly honest, it could have been all kinds of different subcultures that sort of had those sort of themes of belief, faith, being outside of society, um, and having some, having their reputations at stake, um, having, being misunderstood. It, for, for, for a reporter, this is wonderful stuff. <laughs> and it was, and it was, you know, it was, it was, it was, it's very, it's very rich terrain. I also wanted to ask loads of strangers about their married lives. I think everybody wants to do that, don't they? Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I, well, I mean, it's really hard. I've said this on the podcast before. I have a really like Utah centric, myopic, limited worldview. And it's a very Mormon question to ask other people who they're married to, when they're going to get married and how many kids they have. And so it's a relief to hear that other people have struggled with that problem as well. Not just, <laughs> not just us. Um, no, absolutely. So for the, our listeners, uh, just to give you a little background on Sanjeev, um, you're currently a correspondent for Esquire. Is that still the case? That is still the case, yes. Yes, I, I, have, the t- I have a title, U.S. Correspondent. Oh, okay, yeah. And and yeah. you're a freelance writer. You've done work for The Telegraph and other a lot of other publications. And you've written Secrets and Wives, The Hidden World of Mormon Polygamy. And this is how... I sort of found out you and read your book about Mormon fundamentalism. Well, it was great. It was uh, The book was really interesting because since you are an outsider, not from America, uh, not sort of um, involved in Mormonism at all, it was really great to see your perspectives and, and not just your perspectives on, you know, fundamentalism, but the LDS church too and, and sort of your experience with that, although you sort of touch on that briefly. And so I'm so excited to talk to you today and kind of get your uh, take on this because one thing you said in your book, which is really stuck with me, is that, that Mormons in general, and this goes for Mormon fundamentalism, Mormon, fundamentalist Mormons and uh, LDS Mormons, we're kind of self-obsessed. We're really, we really care about what people think about us and what people want to know about us. And you tell this great story in your book about how you get called to this uh, religious high school to tell about your life. And so you tell about traipsing through India and sort of trying to find yourself and then going back to the UK and you tell a story and then there's a Q&A after and none of the kids ask you any questions about yourself. They want to know what you think about them. <laughs> Yes, they do. Yeah, they they ask me very much the same sorts of questions that their parents would ask me, the pro polygamy campaigners from Principal Voices would ask me, 
that church spokesmen from the LDS Church would ask me. They seem to be that pretty universal sort of questions. Are you going to be on our side or are you, are you going to be critical? Are you, are you anti or pro? And it was, I mean, you know, I don't know. I'm from Los Angeles. I'm used to people being a little bit self-obsessed, you know, that whole, that <laughs> whole thing. I, that happens quite a lot, you know. En- enough about me. What, what do you think about me? Yeah, so exactly. It was a little bit like that. But I, I, I completely understand, particularly in the case of fundamentalists. I mean, they, they, at the time, it was uh, against the law. And, you know, I guess it's officially decriminalized now, which is kind of epic. But I, it doesn't seem to have caused many waves, really. But uh, it seems seems quite a big deal because back when I was um, wandering around and bothering fundamentalists the fact that it was against the law was a huge factor they felt that they were very sort of maligned and and i was a member of the media and you know the media is the reason for everything that's wrong with america so um i was kind of the enemy and i needed convincing so i sort of understand it but there was a there's a there's a sort of paranoia that comes with it i don't know if this also goes for LDS Mormons, but for fundamentalists who are sort of that that particular anecdote where I spoke at the school that was in Centennial Park, and that community is it really is sort of an island unto itself out there in the desert. They're yeah. not they're not a closed off people, you know, intellectually or in terms of their attitudes, but physically they they kind of are. They 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 live in a remote town in the middle of the desert. So um, when when a stranger shows up and says, right, starts asking very impertinent personal questions, somebody from the uh, liberal media elite, then, you know, <laughs> I, I don't blame them for being a bit concerned. Well, I, I, I just think you've hit on something because as, growing up as a Mormon my entire life, it's it's almost like there's a systemic problem of like waiting for our turn to talk, right? We'll have a conversation. It's really one-sided and and I think that I I have had this problem in my life. So I thought that was really really good because, you know, I'm part of this sort of progressive Mormon community and I cannot tell you how many discussions I've been involved in hundreds of who we are and what we are and like what sets us apart from like regular Mormons and who are regular Mormons and we're constantly talking about who we are and what we believe in in the same way that fundamentalist Mormons do and Mormons do. We're just like that is what we do. It's a, it must be like a uniquely Mormon thing. But let's let's get into it. Let's talk about tell us how this started for you. So you you find you find this topic interesting and you just decide to go uh, all into it and just drive to Utah? Yeah, kind of. I mean, that's the, the, the way life actually works is, uh, I don't know, it's, it's, it's not quite as Hollywood as that. That sounds great. Like, there's this wonderful, <laughs> wonderful story out there and I'm, I'm going to go get it and just <laughs> jump into my lease car and start. I'm going to go and find me a, a profit. No, it didn't quite work out that way. It was... Incrementally, you know, I did an article for Marie Claire. I did an article for the Telegraph. Both both of them were concerned with the the sort of brewing Warren Jeffs drama, the the building of the um, the temple in uh, the YFC Ranch in in Texas, which was going on at the time. And 
they were noticed by a British TV company called Channel 4, um, fairly big one over there. I mean, you know, it's the fourth channel. And they commissioned me. They said, oh, we've got this English reporter out there and he's writing this stuff about polygamy. It'd be interesting to get an English person to go and tell us about all this this drama. You know, there's this cult leader and he's got all these wives and it's secretive and people are talking about Waco and it was getting very heated. So I got to do a documentary. So after I did the documentary, which was called The Man with 80 Wives, I know he didn't, he kind of has 79, so it wasn't bad, actually, as a guess, but 80 was kind of a guess. It was what people were saying. So that was what the documentary was called, and it got a little bit of heat, I suppose, because then a publisher said, you're the documentary guy. You know how one thing follows on from another? And then when the publisher said, uh, you're obviously an expert because you've done a documentary and all this stuff, so why don't you write a book? What am I going to say? You know, I've never written a book before. I don't think there's a reporter in the world that would then tell the publisher, no, nah, I'm kind of busy. Uh, there's all this stuff on TV. I don't want to miss it. <laughs> you know what Mormons call that? We call that divine intervention. There you go. I was blessed. You were blessed. You were being led. It was a calling. It was a calling. Yeah, yeah, there you go. It was a calling. Exactly. exactly. A calling from a publisher in New York, but a calling nevertheless. Right, right. It, well, and uh, it sounds like you fulfilled that calling. So, you, so you've so you done the documentary, so you had some connections and some experiences. Yes, yes, I did. It was in uh, Colorado City. Um, they're just nice people. You know, they were, they were in a they were in a difficult position because um, it was it was a it was a city that was kind of breaking breaking apart at the time, and they were kind of left on the outside. They were sort of spiritually on the outside and um, left out of the community, but they lived right in the heart of it. So they were surrounded by FLDS members who sort of shunned them. So I you know I, for the documentary I, I I stayed with them. They introduced me to their sort of friends, other people who'd been sort of kicked out by Warren Jeffs and there was a kind of a, a, a sort of a unity of the oppressed if you know what I mean, uh, the rejected and that's kind of what, the way my, my documentary went so I did have a bunch of contacts and, uh, and they were very hospitable the second time around but there was so much more to polygamy this was the thing that was a revelation for the book, it was like, oh my word, there's the true and living church in Manti, there's the order. The order was epic. Yeah. Really extraordinary. That was a world that I really didn't realize existed to that extent. And I want to talk about them. I That brings up an interesting point. So in your book, you talk about several experiences where you sort of, for example, when you're going down to Manti or when you're going down in, towards Colorado City, this this suspicion of being an outsider, you know, you talk about being in a diner and the sheriff shows up. And, and this is kind of the stereotype that fundamentalists have here. You know, I'm in Utah and this is the, you know, the idea that these guys are dangerous and they're very wary of outsiders for good reason. Were you ever scared? Did you ever think, you know, maybe I shouldn't be doing this? Uh, not really, but I don't know if that really... That, that might speak to the fact that maybe I wasn't really in any danger. I think maybe danger is a bit too emotive a word. But also I'm a little bit foolish and a little bit headstrong. Or I, I was um, 
you know, I'm kind of growing out of it a little bit now, thinking that, oh, my God, did I take all those risks? I, I really shouldn't have done that. <laughs> I found myself in worse scrapes than going to Utah and bothering fundamentalists. You know, that, that, that it wasn't as dangerous as all that. But the funny thing about it was that the sense of danger came from this great unknown, which was the extent of the belief, like, who, who are you dealing with? How do they view you? And I remember that was a, a that was at the I put it at, at the start of the book, getting thrown out of the the cafe, the Vermilion Cafe, and that was very early on in the book, and it was very early on in my experience. And at that time, I I really didn't know. So some of the fear came from this gulf of misunderstanding between me and the sheriff, between me and the people, the other people from that community. We sort of looked at each other, um, and it was completely innocuous. All we were doing was drinking coffee. But there was an enormous amount of tension just in that simple interaction. Um, and some of it came from me, too, because I was thinking, you know, this uh, Warren Jeffs, is, uh, pe people say terrible things about him. And, you know, I've read terrible things about cults, and I don't know whether I'm in a safe position here or not. I think with hindsight... I would look back on that moment and say, you know, you really shouldn't be that worried. That's good to know, because since I've been doing this, this series, uh, I grew up with these, these tropes, this divide of the LDS church was the correct church, and we were right, and these guys were really not only far astray, but like deceived by Satan. And, and so when I started this project, I didn't realize how many of those biases I was still holding on to. And I've had this, this experience where I've had a lot of fundamentalists sort of come into my life and some have been, have made me really uncomfortable and some are great. And, and it was weird, you know, reading your book, realizing, Hey, I know all those people. <laughs> I know Anne Wilde and I know Christopher Namelka. And, and, and so yeah. that was, that was crazy to me to think like to see your outside perspective and to think, Oh, these are just people that I've associated with through this community. Wow, you know Christopher Namelka. Yeah, wow, there is a character. There's a character. Yeah, that was that was the hard thing about your book because, again, like I'm I'm continually surprised at how much I just don't know. So I am friends with several of his followers, and the way that it was presented to me was sort of this benign, innocuous thing, like, oh, it's not a religion. It's just you know Christopher Namelka. For those who aren't familiar with him, because we haven't talked about him yet, he believes he has translated the sealed por portion of the Golden Plates, or the Book of Mormon, and he um, has followers, and he's kind of this Fabio cult leader. Well, maybe why don't you tell us about him? <laughs> you 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 know more. <laughs> I love that you called him a Fabio cult leader because that's that's the description of him that you know he's he, he kind of does look a little bit like Fabio. Yeah, it's it's kind of true. Um, I had a uh, I had an odd relationship with uh, Christopher Namalka in that I, I quite liked him, um, partly in the, that awful self serving way that you know I was writing a book and here was this enormous personality who pretty much sat me down and said, um, ask me anything, which is, well, well all right then, you know, uh, <laughs> this is fantastic. I'd, I'd been coming from experiences where people regarded me with sort of a, a great deal of suspicion, gave me stock answers and talking points, and 
it became very exhausting and um i was reporting on my own and there was a lot you know i didn't have anybody to kind of bounce off with this or to share my kind of and i started feeling a bit isolated and just worn down by it and then namelka came in as a breath of fresh air and the things he was talking about were really well i mean well you you, you know you know the kinds of things uh, with just extraordinary like science fiction fantasy things that couldn't possibly ever be true um and so he struck me immediately as somebody that was an an extraordinary con man he had to be because he was too together um he wasn't crazy he was too together to believe this stuff and uh that's kind of how i started but then he kind of darkened as 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 our relationship went on and in the end i think he felt that he hadn't won me over that i wasn't going to kind of present the world according to namelka in a way that he would he would approve of and there was this forgive me this extraordinary story of christine marie um along the way and christine i um was another you know extraordinary character with an extraordinary story that you know it was it it, it it was an upsetting story and at some level it was hard to know what was really going on you've re- you've you've read the chapter i don't want to yes. fully give it away yeah so it, christine it was, was just involved with him and pretty much lost a lot because of her involvement yeah i mean i found that i i suppose I mean, this was a story that that I I, I, don't, I don't know. It sort of almost deserves its own book to some to some extent. Um, sexual um, sexual uh, her, her sort of sexual role where she sort of felt that she had been exploited by him. Um, that there were other actors. That there was money involved. These allegations, which he denies, they 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 coloured this into sort of a crime story in a way, and. It was frustrating not to be able to fully get to the bottom of it. But the one thing that I did come away from with that, um, having kind of gone down that road with both uh, Christopher and Christine, was that they both had a sense of how special they were, you know, that they were special people, that they were put on earth for big reasons. And um, if it wasn't religion, it was going to be something else. You know, it was going to be to save people. It was to be to make the world a better place in some other way. And uh, I think that that sense of exceptionalism, it, it, it felt like something that struck at the heart of, you know, America and American religion and, and, and Mormonism. There's, you know, Mormons are special people. I think they have a sense of their specialness. Am I right about yeah, that? Yeah, no, I was just going to say we see that. I mean, I, so I'm involved with several communities out here, the progressive Mormons, the faithful Mormons, the ex-Mormons, the fundamentalist Mormons. And that's something that comes up time and time, time again, this sort of savior complex. And it plays out in all these weird ways. And, you know, as a Mormon feminist, we always talk about these sort of patriarchal ways. We we have a joke with some of, um, we we call it the should have been a general authority syndrome because so many so many people uh come into the community and they they want to save people and to to an extent I've dealt with that too you know that that was what got me involved um in some of the work that I was doing because I thought if I could just 
you know, help, if I could just help, because I have these, you know, there's a scripture, you know, where much is given, much is required. And we just have such a culture built around that idea. So I think you're absolutely right about that. It's, it's a strong potion, um, you know, that I, think, I think the Mormon religion is strong potion and the sense of specialness. It really sort of struck me that in all these little pockets of, you know, fundamentalism, the, the sheer strength of belief that, and the, the sense of the, the strength of the mission that um, some of these believers believe that they're on is extraordinary. It drives people to do um, really out, some, sometimes outrageous things and sometimes just r- really impressive, radical things. People leave their families. They abandon their children for, for, for these beliefs. And I don't know if I, I've come across that kind of zeal really anywhere else in life. There's something very attractive about it, and I get it. Interesting. Well, uh, so I've kind of been jumping around with all my questions with you because I think I could geek out on the subject with you for a while. But could you right. could you go over sort of just break down um, uh, the list of the different groups that you were involved with and kind of give us a short like synopsis of each group? Yeah, for sure. Um, okay, uh, so, well, Centennial Park, um, which, uh, who, who were lovely. They were, they were kind of lovely to me. And this was early on in my sort of, uh, my, my adventures. Um, I went to live with them for a while, for a period of maybe six weeks, couple of months. Um, I lived in the community. I went to church. I went to various people's houses for dinner. They came over. I cooked for them. It was it was lovely. I was a neighbor. I was accepted, and I had access to speak to really any, anybody that I wanted there. And you know, I I, I feel very fondly towards them in, in Centennial Park, and uh, we had a good relationship. Um, so uh, that was a, a a really lovely and positive start. And it's beautiful out there in the desert as well, which helps. I kind of felt that I was you know things were going almost a little bit too well, you know beautiful sunsets and getting invited over to houses where the the children were incredibly well behaved and so on. I sort of felt a bit bad casting suspicion on some of the things that were being said to me, but I think they kind of came from a sense of defensiveness and, uh, and a sense of, um, wariness of the media. Um, they taken a risk in inviting, inviting me in to, and, and, and having me that close to the heart of their community. And so, so I sort of understand it. That was a great experience. And after that, I went to, um, I went to visit the, uh, well, I say I went to visit the order. I went to try and explore the order. That was a a long process that took the better part of a year on and off. They They were completely different. They were the polar opposite to Centennial Park in so many ways. The order, don't they don't have a sense of dress in the way that Centennial Park does? Centennial Park, you can sort of see out in Colorado City in Short Creek. There's a, it, it has a sort of a tribal feel. There's a way that they dress. There's a way that they live. They uh, it's a, it's rural. It's out in the desert. They they have traditions that have been passed on from generation to generation. They're very much who who they appear to be. Um, the order is very different. They've had to sort of hide and um, infiltrate mainstream society without 
by and, and avoid uh, prosecution. So their way of going about the world is a lot more suspicious, a lot more guarded. They they wear regular clothes. They change their surname so that they uh, so so that the government essentially or or their work colleagues or whoever won't really know what their family ties are, and they won't suss that they're actually polygamists. And their family um, ties are the Kingston. Well, largely the 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 Kingston family, and. Uh, they're, they're either they're either descended from the Kingston family or they're married into the Kingston family. The Kingston family is enormous, um, and there is this very dark practice of incest that is not denied. They don't deny it, which I've always found very really extraordinary. I I find incest. Um, I can't get over my my sense of incest as just um, there's, there's there's something sort of. It contravenes natural law in some way. And, you know, I had to sort of wrestle with that a little bit in the book, that maybe this is just a prejudice that I bring to the subject. And so I did speak to geneticists and so on, and, you know, my, my views on it evolved. Um, that it's it, it, it wasn't as terrible as I thought it was, you know, for in, in terms of children growing up with uh, defects and so on. But at the same time, it's it's still it's a very creepy and it's not it's it's no way to run a society. No, but they and, do in the order. Well, they, and they, they really do. That was the most difficult chapter of your book to read for for me. Well, that and um, a few other parts. But in in my research in general, I've struggled the most probably with learning about them and the LeBarons because it's not just the incest but the abuse. Like the, there is yeah. just such a culture of horrific, terrible abuse. I mean, you tell a story about one of, I believe it's one of the Kingston leaders who he grew up just wanting to um, sort of slap his children till they, as, as a way, till they stopped crying. And yes, that, that was, was one of his techniques. Yes, that was, that was John Ortel Kingston. He was, um, it was founded, the, the order was founded by his, um, am I going to get this right? I think it was his, uh, brother, actually, Charles Eldon Kingston, who founded it when he was 25, you know, he was very young. Um, but one of the themes that I know, I've noticed with both the FLDS and the Order is that the, the people who inherit these, these groups, um, they may not be quite as charismatic. Uh, it takes a certain amount of charisma to start one of these groups to convince everybody that this is this is the way forward, that you're the prophet, that you need to be obeyed, and that these are the these are the rules, and that you've received them directly from God, and uh, it, you know obey them or or be damned, and stand outside of society as well, break the law, lie to your neighbours, do all of these things out of your fealty to me, the prophet. It takes it takes a certain kind of man to do that. Now, their children are not necessarily those kind of men. And what I think what's happened is that this is my armchair psychology of the whole situation, but that their children are in a, in a, in a, they've been groomed to, to take on this, this leadership and to step into their very charismatic father's shoes. And if they don't quite have that spiritual fire, the zeal of a prophet to, to really lead the people, then they do it through force. They do it through being more extreme than their father. And you can see that 
happen um, from leader to leader the way it gets passed along in uh, the order and the FLDS. They have they take on more wives than the the previous prophet. They're they're even more brutal about the the laws, even more uncompromising. They have um, new laws, new rules. Exactly. Yes. They they turn they 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 turn the dial up even even hotter, and they make it harder and harder to you know they 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 really weed out the punishments are much more severe. Um, and this happens, and it kind of reaches a breaking point, and I think it did with uh, Warren Jeffs, and I can't believe it won't with the order. I think it's sort of heading in that direction. Um, but it's, it's, it's hard to say, because I, I've, not been, I've not been in touch with uh, the inside of what's going on at the order for, for a few years now, so I could be wrong about that. We're going to do an, an episode devoted to each of these sects coming up, but... Um just from your general sense, how pervasive do you think this group is and how much influence? Because, you know, when I read, I remember reading your book being a little shocked at some of the surnames because I grew up in the area that, that they live in, which is Murray and Salt Lake and, mm-hmm. and, and that's where I'm from. And so it was kind of shocking to realize, oh my gosh, I'm seeing, I'm seeing my own, my own upbringing with different eyes now. And some, some things make more sense than, then uh, I realize, and I'm co- more connected. I think Utah Mormons, especially, are more connected to fundamentalism than we realize. Do you, do you mean you're more connected in terms that you're now realizing that people that you uh, you counted as colleagues and friends were actually members of the group? Yeah, yeah, that, and uh, just to find out that that uh, there's this whole spectrum of practicing fundamentalists that go to Mormon church and go on Mormon missions and and uh and just the way that our doctrine intersects with their doctrine and it I mean it's just been it's been this sort of faith crisis of my own to realize that I grew up thinking that we were so different and better but it's just all a matter of degree and so that's been it's been a real interesting uh thing to grapple with lately it is a very interesting thing uh yeah your your perspective on that is uh is is very interesting because because you're you're clearly from from this a, a very similar belief system but it's interesting the the sense of separation that these groups tend to need um in order to sort of have that sense of self definition um and to feel special you know it's that feeling of um we're the special ones. We have the truth. You know, uh, the, the the only reason the earth really hasn't been destroyed for for all its wickedness is because of us. We are the we are the, we are the keepers of the flame because we have a prophet who 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 is who is the only legitimate prophet. And it's such a it's such an interesting sort of dynamic. I did find that um, in a very straightforward way. There is a culture within the order of deception that, obviously, you know, a lot of fundamentalists, uh, they, they have been, they have been raised in a culture of deception in which they lie about their upbringings, they lie about their family, family life, and so on. Well, I've, co- I've called it sort of a Mormon tradition, um, which seems a little bit harsh, but I mean, we, from our earliest, conceptions as Mormons, we have this sort of double speak of telling the public one thing and then doing something differently. Well, even now? Um, 
You know, it's very difficult to say that now. I've heard some great conspiracy theories about our current leadership, but I it's it's that's a really interesting question and one that I don't have an answer to. There have been some suspicions that perhaps the church is saying one thing and doing something else, but that would be in a sort of conspiracy theory way. We do know that the church has, for example, with Pro- Proposition 8 and their involvement, said one thing and then done, done something else to the degree that it, you know, it exposed a lot of really negative light on the church. So I don't think we're above it. That's for sure. No, absolutely not. I, I, I think that, you know, your, your suspicions are, are absolutely justified. <laughs> I think, but it's, it's probably not just true of the Mormon Church. I think the Mormon Church has um, has its own sort of traditions of secrecy because Mormons grew up like as fundamentalists do now, as outsiders, as uh, you know, v- viewed as um, sinners in a in a kind of a fundamental way and, and and threatening in some way. That was that's the Mormon heritage, isn't it? Really, so yeah, it's, under, it's understandable that. You know your church, church. Churches always move at a snail's pace. They don't in the Mormon Church, especially. It doesn't seem to have really. It's not very good at catching up with the times. No. And I think I think large corporations, which is essentially what churches are, they all they all do one thing and say another. That's just the nature of the beast, I think. <laughs> well, and that's what's that's the other weird thing that sets. I, I think the LDS movement apart from the fundamentalist movements is there is there is this weird paradigm of like we are God's chosen persecuted people and we are special and yet we have to go out and tell the world and we're going to be as big as we can and and we know that the church claims 14 million members but we know that those numbers are way inflated to actually you know what actual believing membership is and so the LDS Church has kind of gotten obsessed with how big we are and how important we are and how rich we are and how much property we have. And yet some of these groups you talk about do talk about how small they are as their sort of sense of identity. Like their smallness means their rightness because that means they're the only reason why God is keeping the earth, you know, from burning down in a nuclear holocaust or something like that. So, so those kind of differences are interesting because as Mormons, we've been there. Like, that was our narrative for a while. And now we're trying this new thing, and maybe it's not new, where we're like, look how big we are. See how w- well it's working. Exactly. And so, so, so that sort of, that sense that fundamentalists have of, of that the church has apostatized, the church has, has gone the way of, um, you know, Babylon. It's, uh, it's 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 all about money now for the church. It's uh, they don't tell the truth. They've left the they they keep um, editing the faith. They keep editing the doctrines. They they, they just PR want they teams. just want to be accepted. Yeah, we have a lot. Like we have two different PR teams, and uh, that's you know there's the PR is involved in everything. We have these big public relations campaigns. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's definitely a, a hot topic of discussion amongst our community. I'm, I'm sure, and, and you know, one of, one of the things that uh, we were talking about the order. It's one of the things that struck, always struck me as very interesting about um, uh, my experience with the order was the position of uh, the Attorney General at the time, Mark Shirtliff. He he popped up several times in my chapter on the order because he really did have the information um, that he needed to 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 at least investigate, to at least pursue prosecutions, 
if if you consider incest um, a prosecutable prosecutable crime, and um, he sort of said one thing. He said, "Yes, it's terrible. They need to stop." But he very much did the other. He turned he turned a blind eye. Um, he he would warn them that he was going to come and take um, uh, cheek swabs to 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 do the paternity tests and so on to find out who was related to who to make sure that because the the order was telling him yes you know we we, we don't do this and even if we do it's none of your business and he really didn't pursue it and it was a cause of enormous strife to people within the group who were taking huge risks to present him with this information. They were very demoralized by it. And and now we look, you know, Mark Shirtliff, the the, the troubles he's in. This is a, a, a bishop in the church. So when it comes to saying one thing and doing another, it's all over the place. Yeah, and, and it's breeded these sort of conspiracy theories. I've one of them I've heard is that the church you know, and this this stems from fundamentalist theories, which is the church, the LDS church is in apostasy, but we are kind of, you know, keeping the corporate end on earth and doing busy work while the fundamentalists keep polygamy and like live the real principle. And when you look at the shirtless stuff, like that kind of feeds into this, like, okay, they know about it. Mark is, you know, connected with the LDS church and why aren't they prosecuting it? And so it just feeds into this sort of Mormon narrative, which again goes back to your theory of, of our self obsession, right? <laughs> it's just, it's all about us and how, and how it's working. Um, tell us about some of more of the, the different groups because I had originally thought that all Mormon fundamentalists stemmed from the, you know, John W. Woolley. But then, you know, I learned about your group in Manti, the group in Manti, and, uh, they sort of claim their own authority and things like that. So can you tell us more about those groups? Yeah, yeah, the Manti group was uh, fascinating. He's passed away now, um, James Harmston, the uh, you know the, the so-called uh, prophet of Manti, the living Messiah, and um, they were they were very much the the followers of his church, and they were kind of dwindling when I was there. It, 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 the, the heyday was over, you know. Um, they were kind of clinging on a little bit, and he was getting a little bit old, but they were. There's the story that they told was that, you know, James Harmston was visited himself by, who, who was it, uh, Peter, Paul, Joseph Smith. I can't, you know, I can't remember exactly who, but they all came late hands. You forgot Ringo. I think Ringo's in there. I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. Absolutely. Yeah. You can, you, you're not blessed unless you've had Ringo. <laughs> unless you've been Ringoed. No, there's a group that I want to join right there. <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, I mean, the, the whole Harmston story, I mean, the, the guy who was um, my first source there, he, I don't, I don't know if I'm going to reveal too much about him, but no, I said this in the book, he, he makes harps and, uh, you know, the actual angelic harp. So he, and he invited me in and he told me, Completely with a straight face. I say this because I'm not a particularly religious person, so I find it stunning when people say things like this. But he said that um, uh, James Holmston was given the power to read people's minds by knowing what they were thinking just by being in their proximity, by being close to them. And he said that it was a terrible torture for him to hear the thoughts of other people, that he would be at a traffic light 
and he'd he he'd be polluted this racket of other people's thoughts in the cars either side of him so after three days of this he had to go in, into a park and plead with god to um to be relieved of this gift then wow imagine believing that imagine that this guy who just lives down the road like you could go and knock on his door I had these kinds of superpowers essentially he was a super, he was a marvel superhero and he was just living down the road and if you really believed it then well what 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 else are you going to do you're going to i think what the guy that the heart maker had actually done was abandon his previous family and say i'm following this guy you know you're either you're either with me or you're not but you're not going to stop me and he completely ripped apart all the relationships in his life at that point i mean talk about a midlife crisis he really did you know rip it up and start again but he genuinely believed that this guy was that special well the the thing that was difficult for me to understand but now i'm not surprised is that the majority of the converts for a lot of these groups and particularly this group too are usually former lds mormons right that's fair to say yes Yes. And yes, we have this weird, like, we're kind of, I'll, I'll be honest with you, like, even when you were talking about um, some of the things that Namelko was saying, and I was, like, thinking, how could anyone believe this? This is completely nuts. And then you would say something that he said, and it was framed in such familiar language that it would, like, speak to me. And I, I was, like, jolted, like, and f with the shame, like, what it, what just happened there? Uh, you know this guy is is off his rocker and dangerous a little bit, and yet you kind of got sucked into it. And I think that that is how this happens. I mean, we grew up getting patriarchal blessings, which is a man putting his hands on his head and sort of, I, I guess, to, an, you know, the unwashed, it would be like a fortune, uh, which is reductive, but it, it sets us up for this kind of, belief into mysticism and spirituality and revelation and things like that. And so if it does seem weird to think, how could someone believe a guy that says he's hearing voices? It's really weird when they start using this really familiar language from the scriptures and um, how it, it can like speak to somewhere, you know, deep inside your brain. It's that, that was unusual for me. Yeah, that that was, that was Namelka's great, um, art, wasn't it, to 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 sort of use that language to, to 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 use a Mormon a Mormon training against you at a moment of weakness. So he would sort of time his um, he'd go to dances. I mean, he pr proudly talk about this that he would go to dances and meet women whose marriages had fallen apart, so they're in a state of like emotional weakness. And for a Mormon woman whose marriage has fallen apart, um, it's it's not just a marriage. It's her celestial future. It's the reason, in many cases, that she existed was her family. She had lots of children and so on. And when it falls apart, she's done everything she can to kind of hold it together, and it hasn't worked. So she's a mess. She, emotionally, she's very vulnerable and then in comes Namelka, in comes Fabio, with the, with the, with, with all the Mormon patter. It's very tempting. It worked. Even with James James Harmston, he, by all accounts, he is a like everyone said he was a nice guy, and he he sort of has this. At least everything I know about him, I I never met him, 
but he just seemed like this, like your Mormon neighbor, you know? Yes. And here he was. And, and then when you get into the, in your book and we won't reveal this, but sort of the nitty gritty details of his relationships, there's a real dark side to that. Yes, yes, there is. I mean, I sort of feel sorry for anybody who has to have their relationship discussed in such detail. <laughs> you know, do you know what I mean? It's a, uh, it's it's. Yeah, but but that said, you know, she was she was young, she was vulnerable. He was um, the worst kind of exploiter. Maybe not the worst kind, but it, there, there was no innocence about his part of it. Part in it, and. Uh, it took a long time, I think, for for, the, for that to dawn on the on the girl, you know. Well, um, and even their, I mean, their marriage ceremony, like that you describe in the book, is very similar to. I mean, it's sort of a makeshift LDS temple ceremony, but it's just there's something about this common language that I think is really intoxicating, and especially like you said, when you're vulnerable or you're hurt or you've been, you know, wounded by the institutional LDS church it really makes it easy to kind of be sucked into this this sort of belief paradigm. And, and I, I don't want to make that, I'm not trying to disparage anyone's faith necessarily, but from an outside perspective, it does seem very um, predatory in a way. Yes, yes. Yeah, I, I, I think you're absolutely right. Predatory is exactly the word. And this, the, I remember we were talking about James Harmston, the, the guy who made the harps said that um, very cleverly that um, J- James Harmston didn't want to be the prophet. He didn't, he didn't ask for this. It was a burden, you know, that he had to lead, he had to lead mankind to, to its glorious future. He had to save the world from wickedness. It's like, oh, really? It's got <laughs> to be me, but I'm just your Mormon neighbor. I'm a humble man. I imagine that would be a very difficult burden to shoulder. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's just... That's that's the artfulness of this, you know. That uh, that maybe I think Nimelka was more of an out and out alpha male predator, where he would come out and say, "I'm the man. I'm writing the scriptures. Jump on board. You can be my my my, my first wife. You can, you know, it's going to be you and me in heaven." Whereas I think Harmston managed to convince all the people around him that he really didn't want this, but if you did. If you if you think I'm the man, then okay, I'll reluctantly step into the position. I guess I'll I guess I'll wear the throne. And I thought, well, how how clever. There's uh, there's something I said in my book that if you if there's you may not have special powers, but if 150 people around you say that you do, then to some extent you actually do. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. And, and, you know, me knowing, going through this series, I think some of our listeners are going to draw some comparisons to other s- historical figures in our past that have a very similar narrative like this. I see, you know, um, we have quotes from Brigham Young and Joseph Smith who say things like, I didn't want this, and now I have it. And then yet you'll see these fiery sermons, too, that, it, that are sort of Namelka-esque that say, I am the one and fall in, follow me and fall in line or get out of here. And so it's, it's weird for me to see, uh, fundamentalist Mormons sort of taking these different aspects of our historical figures and playing them out sort of, you know, fused with their own, their own personalities in this contemporary life. It's, 
It's just fascinating to me, um, especially because growing up I had this one really safe narrative of how things were, and now I realize it's not that way. Yeah, and I think the, the, the way in which this narrative gets, gets used as well, it, it, it's part of the power of people like Harmston and, and Namelka is, is that they operate at the fringes of, um, of society and of belief. Um, the, 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 the extreme fringes where people tend to be either sort of very hurt or maybe a little bit, um, lost, but they're not, you're, they're not what you, what you might normally consider, like just a sort of a, a stable working Joe, um, somebody who, who leads a sort of balanced life. Their lives have been thrown out of balance by, in one way or another. And the fact that polygamy has been illegal for so long and that this illegality has kind of worked itself into the sort of the DNA of fundamentalism, there's this enormous persecution complex that is, they really cherish it. They sort of hold on to it like a badge. It's, it's really helped, I think. It's really helped bad actors, you know, exploiters, and, uh, or, or maybe people who, who are just a little bit mentally ill and really do believe that they are the saviour. They're not really in it for the, for the women and the power. They're kind of in it to save the world. But it sort of helps those people. And now that it's been decriminalised, I sort of wonder what's going to happen. Yeah, you, know? you, you bring up this really great point in your book where you talk about this conflict of, you know, so, so Centennial Park, for example, they have really been trying to advocate to get it decriminalized. The TLC, uh, the, or, and sorry, the TLC, the AUB has really yes. been trying to, the AUB who's on TLC, that messes me up. Um, <laughs> they, uh, have really been trying to get it decriminalized and things like that. But you bring up this point that, um, that we see in other sort of, activist groups like you know with sex trafficking and things like this like do you legalize prostitution or um or polygamy or something like this because if you do then it will drive some people further underground and you talk about the need for the secrecy how a lot of these groups have really thrived because it's been illegal because they've had to go underground and sort of there's this whole narrative and culture that's built into their theology now about it being secretive so once they don't have that what's going to happen yeah i i, I think that this um it's back to that theme of specialness you know that um by by being small and separate to the rest of the world, or to them, to have an us and to have a them, I think is kind of really intrinsic to a lot of these groups. And the fact that it's uh, illegal gives you an enemy. There's no, there's nothing, there's nothing better for I think for a fledging religion than to to feel put upon, to feel to have a to have an oppressor. So yeah. it worked. It did great for uh, Mormonism. You know, they were they 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 really suffered in the early years, but didn't didn't stop them they they, they, they grew became a very powerful it's kind of extraordinary the rise of mormonism doesn't it sort of breaks all the rules but it really worked and, and in fundamentalism you talk about centennial park they were telling me that their history when they talk about all the prophets and how how their their society down there sort of evolved and how they are the sort of the beating heart of polygamy in um in utah and you know, how, how they're where polygamy really lives. Um, 
they always talked about um, how happy the community was and how, how much it thrived and how much it prospered after things like the raid. Like there was a raid in 1953 that they talk about in, um, it's like the Kennedy assassination or something. It's, it's, it's a, it's, it's an enormous wound in their history. That's been like really romanticized though. And sort of like there's these legendary figures that emerge and exactly. it, they tell their children this, you know, and it becomes this, this story, just sort of like, you know, our fascination in the LDS church with the pioneer story, right? Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. You you can create myths out of it, and it there's a sense of self definition as well that you, it kind of galvanizes everybody, brings them around a kind of a united cause. Whereas really, this wasn't a united group at all. You know, at the time of the raid, it was a very young culture, fundamentalism, and it was breaking apart all over the place. It was, it, was, it was kind of an open question as to who was going to lead this and where they were going to go and how it was going to proceed, this idea of, you know, practicing the principle outside the law. But once the raid had happened, then, well, it was, it was all hands on deck, you know. It was a very noble cause. And they talk about that as, you know, one of the, the, as the, sort of the halcyon days of Centennial Park. Uh, it wasn't Centennial Park then, of Short Creek. Where they where they literally built the kingdom, they built the roads, they built the houses, and um, you know it's uh, you know the kids kids could play in the street, <laughs> the birds would land on your shoulders and sing, and the, you know it was a it was a wonderful time because they had this they had this enemy and they had a cause, you know what if if, it, if it's if it's decriminalized and anybody can have a go, I mean. And you're not going to get thrown in jail for it, and the enemy's not that easy to discern. Then what other point of difference? They're going to have to find another point of difference. Well, I think right now in the LDS church's uh, narrative, it's sort of this gay marriage fight, right? You know, we talk about being persecuted. You know, I've seen conference talks in our LDS, you know, an annual general conference where we talk about this idea of how. We are persecuted because the world is trying to pressure us and make us the villains and make us the bigots. And so, I mean, it, but it's sort of this like half-hearted attempt compared to what fundamentalists are dealing with. So I think you're right. I think what, what are they going to do? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I, I don't know. There's going to, there's going to, somebody's going to have to raise the bar, you know, they're going to have to t take it a step further. There's that to, to, to have that sense of people are always very valiant in opposition. You know, the people, you can have very strong views in opposition. Um, but to, to actually give, you know, be, be careful what you wish for, I think, I think is what, uh, what fundamentalism may, may, may be about to experience that. Yes, you're, you know, you have the freedom to be yourself, but, and you're not going to get prosecuted, but, what will happen to your culture if it doesn't have that sort of galvanizing sense of like you're being persecuted by the big bad state or by the, the, the godless majority? What if the majority are just fine, kind of indifferent? Yeah, indifferent. Indifferent is probably one of the bigger threats, right? Like what if we can't be unique anymore? And and it's something that I, you know, I learned from reading your stuff is that it seems like you had this great affection for Centennial Park and sort of, you know, you were, you just 
barely sort of covered the all red group, the AUB, but they seem sort of healthier, more well adjusted to society because they do have this aspect of openness. Um, yes. Tell tell me about that. Tell me about the AUB and uh, your experiences with them. Well, to be honest, I, I really didn't have much um, much joy with the AUB. I, I I really kind of nibbled at the fringes of it. And and Wild introduced me to Lemoyne Jensen, and I went to a church service. And you know, there were there were a few other meetings, but I was very much kind of on the outside. It was a bit difficult for me to sort of penetrate. Um, I suppose the personal lives. What, what my impression, and it really is just an impression, because that's that's as far as I could go with the AUB, was that they were a very well rehearsed, well practiced. You know, they were they were they were practiced in presenting themselves to outsiders like me, and so I found that my interactions with them weren't particularly interesting because there wasn't the sense of rawness and unguardedness that I found, I suppose, maybe with some other other groups that was, was in, a, in a way sort of less prepared. You know, I met the Dargas, for example, who who were part of that book, Love Times Three. Um, and, you know, the Darga family have been held up, I think, in, in fundamentalism as a very, very much a model family. But there was a, I, I just had a sense that they knew that what they were going to say, regardless of who I was, where I was from, or what I asked them, there was a version of themselves that they were very rehearsed at presenting. So that was so. So my experience with the AUB wasn't particularly enlightening, but I did love um, the community that lives at the Rock. They don't even really have a name, but um, there's it's, it's sort of a smattering of polygamists, families that are you know, related, mostly related, they mostly have members of, of the Foster family and some other families. But th- that was another group that I, you know, I really liked. They were very warm. They were very open. And, um, and seemed, I mean, with the exception of living literally in a rock, they, they seem pretty well adjusted and, and I guess healthy. I mean, as healthy as any other, as any other, you know, neighbor down the street, I guess. Right. It didn't seem yes. like there was this weird, dark underbelly of the of this group. No, they, they, they really they sort of embodied the uh, the kind of lifestyle that you would see on the surface. You know, they're sort of whizzing around on uh, little ATVs and they're working the land. They're growing their own um, uh, vegetables and they're um, homeschooling and they're having barbecues and they're living out in the middle of the desert um and it has that sort of that sense of oh you know this they were consciously trying to create a kind of bucolic sort of paradise out there you know away from the world peaceful playful joyous but they kind of they were a bit like that you know they 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 didn't restrain their kids from you know from going out into the world for example they would go out and then they would come back because it was quite fun at the rock. It was always fun at the rock. So there was, there was, there were always visitors from people out in wherever St. George or Salt Lake city or wherever people, people who'd gone out into the world and worked, they, they would come back and they'd see their family at the rock and 
have a holiday. So it was a lovely atmosphere. And I thought that kind of thing, I, how can you frown on? How can you frown on a group of people who want, who want to live that way? I just think it's a very brave and noble way to want to live. It takes, it takes a lot of courage and it takes a lot of heart, I think. So I've always been in favour of decriminalisation. And it's because of people like the Rock, it's because of people like uh, Centennial Park, that there's a way to do it while being generous and open. It doesn't have to be sinister. It doesn't have to be corrupted. Yeah, and I was going to ask you that, what your overall takeaway was with that, because I tend to be on the, the, the belief system that, you know, consenting adults with informed consent, you know, do can do whatever they want as long as they're not harming anyone else and and that's fine but there there does seem to be this weird dynamic with mormon polygamy that that gets me concerned because i have yet to see a sort of um positive net benefit from the lifestyle that said uh yeah there are people that do seem to practice it and and if they have problems it would be on par with any other monogamous marriage yeah, I mean, I, I, I suspect that people who have uh, problems grappling with uh, polygamy probably have, um, they're, they're, pro- they're probably dealing with a lot more complex issues than I think you might find in monogamy. You know, it's, uh, things get exponentially more complicated the more wives and people and personalities and children that you bring in. All the different relationships, you know, the, um, it starts getting it starts getting complicated, and I think that this idea that polygamy is um, is just a, a really desirable way to live—I don't see it. And I think that um, I think it's a, a very challenging way to live. And I think if it, it tests the faith of the people involved um, immensely, I think, especially the women. Uh, so it's all. I think its natural state in society will be as a sort of a minority sport, you know. I don't think a lot of men are going to want to have lots of wives either. It's hard work. Yeah. You don't get to talk to anybody. You don't get any time. Every time your phone goes off, you're like, oh, no, what is it now? You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I it's- mean, that's – so when I was talking about, like, the, the darkest part of my research has probably been the order. I mean, that that has been really difficult for me to – to weed through, but, and, and especially in your book, that was a dark chapter as well. But there was a story that you told, and I'm not going to give it away, but it was, a, it was just sort of this benign, you would call it a low level example of polygamy in Centennial Park that was really difficult because I think the reason why it was so difficult, it was, it was about this average, very likable couple, and they sort of tell about these sort of just normal, everyday sort of squabbles they have. But like you said, kind of compounded with other personalities. And that was really heartbreaking to me. I think because it was so benign, if that makes any sense. Ah, I, I think I know what you mean. Yes. There was a, a, a zitting family and uh, where I talked to the, he had two wives. Yes. Yes. It, it was a very simple case of polygamy. This is, it can't get more simple than that. And, and they're not affected by external um, pressures, you know, that they don't have, illness in the families, they don't have, um, you know, they're not poor, they have standing in their community, they're successful in business, they have all of these things. Their greatest challenge in life is polygamy. 
yeah. by, by, by a long way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I like, I would, I would encourage everybody to go buy the book and read the chapter on Centennial Park, if nothing else, because to me, that example alone has probably been one of the most uh, illustrative examples in all of my study to show me kind of just not only like what they were facing, but it really, I can put it in the context with the pioneers that we have talked about because it's such a very simple thing that I think would happen to anyone who was, was living the principle. So I, I mean, it was just like, it was just a family struggle of dynamics and logistics and kids and, 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 and yet it was so, there was so much heartache and, and the woman, um, I believe her name is Emma in the story and her husband, Jacob, she said, just to give a background, she was married to him for 15 years before they took on their second wife. And she said, you know, when I took, when I married him, every single insecurity I have ever had, every jealousy comes up and, uh, I had to give him up. I had to give up her. She said, I had to give up my husband. And that was really powerful. Yeah. Yeah. She, she, she was, she was an amazing woman, actually. Um, that there, there was no guarantee that those interviews were going to go ahead. Um, it was her, it was the second wife, the younger second wife, who was quite keen on, um, involving their family. And, uh, and she was, she was quite quiet, but it's, it's kind of, the first wife being more quiet, being more steeped in the culture that she she'd grown up. She was the the daughter of Marion Hammond, who was well, not the daughter. He had, he had many many daughters, but one of the daughters of Marion Hammond, who was a founder of Centennial Park. So she was really um, entrenched in the community, and she'd made all these choices in her life already to remain there and to do the work uh, out of honour for her father, out of honour for her mother. And, and it was, it was so tremendously difficult for her, you know, when the time came and it was so interesting that, that she'd given me her story. And I remember she said, um, she said she was like appalled. It was like a kick in the gut. And, you know, she was very visceral the way she described it. And I asked her like, but, but how can this have been, how can this have been such a, a shock to you? How can this have been such, such a caught you by surprise like this? I'm mean, sure you knew You'd grown up in this culture. You knew that this day was coming. Surely you, you wanted this. And, and she kind of mocked me. She said, what, would, you, would, you, would you like your wife to take another husband? I thought, well, that's the question, isn't it? You know, why, would I, why would I think that she's any different to me in that respect? Just because she's from a certain culture. She, you know, that she, she, she brought it right down, down to basics. She said, we're all people here. We all have human emotions about all of these things. And if you think it's going to be difficult, then it is. You know, the, 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 the reasons that you would think twice about a, a life like this are all the reasons that we, we think and we, we go through every day. And she said, like, when I, I've decided to do this interview with you, but I'm not just going to give you the right answers. And, and I thought, oh, Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> well, That's yeah. Exactly what I want. I mean, it know. was such a good story because of that. Because, like, you know, we're we're used to the Warren Jeff stories, which are just like unspeakable evil, and so to hear a story that that didn't have any of that, like you said, but it was just a struggle. It was a very human human story, and like I could connect with these people, and I could I could really feel her pain because like, I don't know what it's like to be a child bride, you know, and like manipulated by a prophet in that way. But I could, 
I could really understand her struggle in a way, I think. I could really relate to that. So that was, yeah, If you, everybody go and buy the book and read that chapter. It's just so, so powerful. And we're going to link to that on the site. But oh, I'm so I'm so I'm so surprised that that's the one that really struck out for you. But I completely understand it when you put it that way. No, it was. I mean, it's it's funny. I actually got your book on tape too, and I would also recommend that because if you enjoy Sanjeev's lovely melodic uh, British accent, imagine him talking <laughs> about the order. <laughs> it, it sounds better when it when for some reason it's like listening to Lily Allen curse. It's just better that way. So, yeah. Um, so I, you know, I actually made friends that were staying with me. I became that person. I'm like, you got to listen to this chapter. Hold on. Listen to this. So yeah. Cause I just think it really sums up. I mean, it just really gets to the heart of this, this practice, at least for me, not having lived it, you know, but just having really studied it. I think that that really nailed the experience for a lot of people. They're it's, lovely it's people as well. That family, the Zitting family. The kid, the kids were really nice. They were happy. You know, they were free. They, it was, it was, it was, it was a lovely situation. And they had parents where, the, the, you know, there was even a little bit of tension among the parents um, with me there. You know, I, I found that with a lot of these families, I would go in and I'd be this kind of seed of confusion, conflict. You know that there would be one wife that would be much more willing to talk to me and another one who would disapprove of the other wife for talking yeah. to me. And um, a husband who was kind of concerned that I wouldn't speak to so-and-so wife because she might give you the wrong idea and that the kids might misbehave. And But some of the older kids were quite curious and they would ask questions and they'd get in trouble for asking the wrong questions. So I felt that, you know, that whole Schrodinger thing that you affect... A situation just by observing it that obviously I wasn't just observe, I wasn't a fly on the wall I was a real presence and you know in this quite private I mean every home is private but in a fundamentalist home even more so and there I was you know at the table with a tape recorder so I really did so kind of um, disharmony you know, without necessarily meaning to, but it just sort of happened. And in the, in this case, the case that we're talking about with Emma and Jacob, Emma turned the corner. She wanted to, she wanted to do this. So, and she gave me the, the, the real skinny on how terrible she felt and all of her problems and misgivings about the new wife and how difficult it was to live with this woman and how different they were. The second wife um, was trying to put a bit more of a gloss on it, but that she was very vulnerable too about how she wasn't really part of this family. Those kids weren't really her kids and that she couldn't really have kids. So it compounded it even further. And, and um, that's interesting, right? Because that is why she did this, right? So it was kind of like, hey, this is the answer to all my problems. I can't have kids, so I'm going to marry into this family. But you're right. Yes. That became like... Instead of like this great benefit, it became this really difficult trial, I guess. It was, yes, it was, it was, it was tough for her. It was tough for her. And he is obviously stuck in the middle of the two. Oh, he so seems whenever, miserable. <laughs> totally miserable. He's always wrong. Yeah. Always wrong. He, well, and, it, the, he lost his companion with Emma, it sounds like, because she says, I gave him up. And that's what was painful for me to realize, like, they all kind of lost something because now he that trust that intimacy of the the one partner 
is gone. Even though yeah. they're all t- like, and, but you can tell they're all trying their best and they're all really trying to make it work. Yeah, there's a there's a there's a, a, a amazing determination about them, and I remember a- Emma saying, just like Jacob, uh, it's funny calling them that because they're both made up names, but um, Emma Emma would say, um, uh, talking about the second wife, I I can't wait till wife number three comes along, then she'll realise what it's like, because then she'll have a, a sense of what I went through. Just, she'll just get a taste of it, and I want her to feel that. I want her to know. And then she can kind of, then me and her will be on, on more of an even keel. And similarly, Jacob was like, oh, I can't wait to, for wife, wife number three, because then at least if two of them are fighting, then the other one, you know, can be my sort of companion. Oh, yeah. I can be right sometimes, you know. Oh, golly. Yeah. And here's the thing. What's interesting about them is, like I said, I really can connect them with pioneer ancestors because Brigham Young famously had this this issue with Emmeline, who was his favorite wife. And when he marries Amelia, all the other women are like, are so happy because Emmeline gets brokenhearted that she is replaced as favorite for Amelia. And uh, all these other women are saying, see, this is how it feels. I hope, yeah. I hope you're getting a taste of your own medicine. And, and I really, I struggle because, you know, sitting back and like reading your book or whatever, you want to make these people characters and you want to give them these tropes and these scripts and make these women bad. But in your story, in this particular story, you see that nobody's really the bad guy. Yeah, yeah. It's just a tough, tough situation for all of them. They're all lovely people. They just, they've just chosen this very difficult life. But I mean, maybe they're right. Maybe number three. I mean, this is something that a lot of a lot of polygamous families said that you know, two two is struggle, two two is perpetual war, but three kind of balances it out. And after a while, you know, if you if you do get up to sort of five, six, and seven, and so on then it's you're kind of more of a CEO almost. It seems they, they, the husbands seem more like sort of CEOs. They're not necessarily fully in touch with everything that's going on. And, ah, that's uh, so hard for me because I've heard the same thing about having kids. And this is the, the problem that I have. I, I do think polygamy sort of infantilizes this relationship, the, the, the marriage relationship. The husband almost seems to become this herder of of children instead of women, you know, and partners. And not always the case. That's that's probably pretty harsh, but I mean, I've heard the same thing about having kids. People told me that 3 is so much easier than 2 because um and then after that it just you just what's 4? What's 5? What's 6? It doesn't matter. Right. So oh, How many hard. kids have you got? I have 3. I have so 3. What, how does that compare to 2? Does it did you feel that yeah, well, uh, three actually, I mean, there's that trope that once you have the third, then you run out of hands, which is true. But it did, three did seem to bring this sort of weird balance <laughs> to things. I don't know. I don't know what it is. However, and I'm sure fundamentalists will deal with this as well. If you have an odd number in your family, like, what do you do when you go to Disneyland, right? Who, who's the odd man out that rides the ride? So. There is right, the Disneyland question, very the, important. Very important question. Very, I, we're Mormons, important. we have this thing with Disney too. So, <laughs> uh, so I have one more question, and then and then I'll let you go because you've been so generous with your time. But uh, 
Do you do you have relationships with these people? We're writing this book because you didn't pull any punches with you know some of these groups. No, I mean it's kind of it sort of saddens me a bit. You know, this is one of the reasons that I've sort of a, I've kind of lost touch with uh, polygamy and fundamentalism since writing the book, and I sort of suspected it might turn out that way because um, people within the within the culture, uh, I, you know, I sort of. I knew that they they wouldn't take too kindly to some of my characterizations of their faith and so on, and it's 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 a, it's just it's just always a very difficult thing. Nobody really likes the way that they're portrayed because it's not necessarily how they see themselves, and it's not necessarily how they interpret the experience of the interview, for example. And it's such a strong belief system, and it's these are these are such strong close-knit societies that it's very, it would be, I think it would be very difficult for me to be anything but, you know, uh, if, if, you know, if I'm, if I'm going to be honest, I'm, I, I'm not, I'm not going to satisfy that community's version of, of themselves, you know, that community's idea of themselves or that family's idea of themselves. And it's going to be difficult to be friendly with me. Do you know what I mean? Because I've said things, about them and their leaders and their methods of choosing wives, even in Centennial Park. Um, you know, I would argue with one of the priesthood council about how they chose their wives. And I liked him, but I found the method of doing it arbitrary and, and ridiculous, really. Like, how on earth can such a momentous decision come down to really just a, a, a group of men making sort of arbitrary decisions and listening to or saying that they listen to dreams. And, you know, I, I didn't feel I could be honest in my book without challenging that. And I don't see if I, I don't see that there's a way that my book ends up on their shelves now that I've done that, you know? So it sort of saddens me because I have a lot of uh, affection for a lot of the people there. I had a good time and they were, they were very uh, kind to me. Well, I do. I realize I did have one more question for you, and that is, have you read the Book of Mormon, and how soon can we send the missionaries over to your house? <laughs> send them over. Send them <laughs> over. They can, they can come in for, um, are they allowed to have tea? No, I was going to say a cup of tea because I'm English, but they're not allowed to have tea, are they? Chamomile, maybe. Maybe. It depends. It depends on, uh, it depends on who's looking, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> But yeah, I, well, I so appreciated your book. It was really interesting to see, uh, sort of your outsider perspective, especially the LDS church. And we didn't even get into that, like this sort of starkness that even I was going like, well, ouch, I don't think that that's fair. But it was, it was good. It was really good to get your perspective. So I'm so glad that you decided to do this project and write about this book. And I'm even more glad that you came on to talk about it tonight. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Lindsay. I feel very honored to be invited. I appreciate that very much. Well, um, I will link to your book, and if you have anything else you want us to link to, uh, we'll do that on the site. But everyone, thanks for joining us for another episode of the Feminist Modern Housewives podcast. 